0: But I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Madame Marie Delphine LaLaurie. Marie Delphine McCarty was born on March 19, 1787 in New Orleans, Louisiana. So let's get into some history for that time. 1787 was the year that William Herschel discovered that one of the planets in our solar system, Uranus, had moons. A group in Philadelphia began forming the, quote, Free African Society under the leadership of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. The group fostered identity, leadership, and unity among black Americans, mostly for organizing religious services. Also, the first African-American Masonic Lodge formed in Boston. In May, delegates began to gather in Philadelphia to draw up the U.S. Constitution. The first U.S. President, George Washington, presided over the convention. The Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II banned children under the age of eight from having to do manual labor. Also in 1787, Arthur Phillips set sail with 11 ships that were boarded with criminals and convicts, and they were headed toward Botany Bay, Australia. He would become the first governor of New South Wales. Philosopher and writer, the Marquis de Sade shouted from Bastille that prisoners were being slaughtered and finally classical musician and composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart completed his chamber piece a little serenade so this was the atmosphere that Delphine was born into now, I'm going to butcher some of these French names, and I apologize ahead of time. I don't want to offend any of my French-speaking listeners, so disclaimer. So Delphine's parents were Louis Bartholomew de McCarty and Marie-Jeanne Lerabe. Louis's father, Bartholomew, had moved to New Orleans from Ireland and married a woman named Francois. Louis was born in 1743 in New Orleans. He had nine other siblings. Louis' family was prominent within the local European Creole community and his father later bought a significant amount of land. It is said to have been along the riverfront from present-day Lower Line Street upriver to Monticello Avenue, so a little over a mile. One of Louis's brothers developed the land into an enslaved sugarcane plantation. It would continue to be prime real estate for generations. Now, Marie-Jeanne Lerabe was born in 1747 in New Orleans, though her father did hail from France. Her family were held in high esteem and were quite wealthy among French Creole society themselves. I wasn't able to find exactly if they themselves owned land or what their situation was, but it didn't matter. They were rich. Marie herself was a socialite, a beautiful girl raised with grace and was described as quite charming. Now... Marie got married in 1763 at 16 years old to a man named Charles Lecomte. Together they had three children, Alexander, Marie Adelaide, and André. But sometime after the birth of André, Charles died. From what I couldn't find, but what I do know was that Marie was already a widow, barely in her 20s. Some time after, Louis and Marie were married and they had their first child together, Marie Therese in 1780. Marie Delphine was born seven years later. Marie Delphine, which I will from now on just refer to as Delphine, had an uncle that was the governor of two Spanish-American provinces and one of her cousins would later become the mayor of the city. Being born into privilege would be an understatement. So during this time in her very early life, much of Louisiana, including New Orleans, was under Spanish control. Then when she was four years old, the Haitian Revolution began. This revolution was a successful uprising by self-liberated slaves against the French colonial rule in what is now Haiti. They did win their independence in the end, but this of course made slaveholders in the southern United States as well as in the Caribbean quite scared that their own slaves would take part in this uprising. In fact, one of Delphine's uncles was actually murdered by one of his own slaves, which in turn made the slaves be treated even worse. It was just this terrible domino effect. As for any real stories about her childhood, there just really aren't any. But it would be easy for us to imagine that she was quite catered to. We have to assume she wanted for nothing, and there were no reports of abuse or neglect inflicted upon her. She maintained quite a prominent position within the rich social circles, being a socialite just as her mother had been. Delphine was described as having impeccable manners. She was sweet, gracious, and captivating. In 1800, when she was just 13 years old, she married Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo, sorry if I butchered that, who was a high-ranking Spanish officer. She and her husband traveled to Spain and its other territories. At 18 years old, she gave birth to a daughter, Marie-Francois Borgia in Cuba, though her nickname was Borquita. Around the same time, Don Ramon became sick and died, but from what I couldn't find. So, the newly widowed and new mother took herself and her newborn back to New Orleans. It wasn't but four years later when Delphine married again to a very successful banker, merchant, lawyer, and legislator by the name of Jean Blanc in 1808. She was 21, he was 33. Jean was nearly as affluent as Delphine's family in that region, but she still retained her own wealth and was happily independent. During her lifetime, women were not really able to obtain the kind of power and control as a man. She did, however, have complete control of her household, but was known to be civil to her slaves that she and her husband owned. Jean bought her a house at 409 Royal Street in New Orleans, which became known later as the Villa Blanc. According to the Library of Congress, Jean was born in France and was a commissioner of war under Napoleon, who came to Louisiana with a French governor. Once in New Orleans, he owned ships involved in the slave trade and was a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives. Together, they had four children, Marie-Louise Paulina, Louise-Marie Laurie, Jean-Louise-Marie, and Jean-Pierre Paul and Jean-Pierre Paul was the baby, born in 1815. By the next year, the now 29-year-old Delphine was a widow with five children. But what did this husband die from? Couldn't find that either. The now 38-year-old Delphine would marry for a third and final time in 1825 to a physician named Leonard Louis Nicolas Lalaurie, who was just 23 years old. Leonard was a native of France who apparently came to New Orleans to begin practicing medicine after having finished medical school. He introduced himself to the high society of New Orleans, and he and Delphine began dating quickly. Madame Laurie was already quite wealthy herself, having gotten her inheritance along with two very rich and very dead former husbands. Side note: At this point, Delphine's eldest child, Bokita, was twenty years old, grown, and married into the distinguished Forstall family. And now, with the marriage, she was Madame Marie Delphine Lalaurie. The couple bought some property at 1140 Royal Street in 1831, and it was said that Delphine watched over and guided the construction. By 1832, they had built a three-story mansion with slave quarters attached to the main house. Mm -hmm. Delphine maintained a central position in the social circles of New Orleans. She employed many slaves and the house was, at that time, the tallest structure in the French Quarter. She threw these lavish parties with Guest lists consisting of some of the most prominent people in the city. People who attended these parties reported that she was kind to her slaves. And then just kind of an extra piece of information. The renowned Louisiana Creole voodoo queen Marie Laveau lived in New Orleans at the same time, just a few blocks from the LaLaurie house. Although the nature of their relationship is unknown, undoubtedly these two women met and knew each other. Marie Laveau was reportedly born a, quote, free woman of color in what is now the French Quarter in 1801. But that was kind of a broad term as she was indeed African, but also Native American and had some French history as well. She was a dedicated healer and herbalist and, quote, traveled the streets like she owned them, unquote. And side note, she did, in fact, own a beauty parlor where she was a hairdresser to the local wealthy families as portrayed in American Horror Story Coven. I didn't find any documentation showing that Delphine and Marie Laveau actually had any interactions But it would be nearly impossible for each not to know the other. Now, with all of this opulence and wealth, it couldn't actually buy the silence of people observing the condition of her slaves. Some reported that they looked, quote, singularly haggard and wretched, unquote, They looked malnourished and exhausted, though there exist court records showing she emancipated two of her own slaves. But the court of public opinion was full of rumors about her mistreating them to the point that a lawyer visited the Lalaurie home to remind her of the laws with regards to the treatment of these people. The lawyer said that while he was there, he didn't really observe anything, any kind of wrongdoing or any mistreatment of the slaves. One story about Madame Delphine goes, a 12-year-old slave girl was brushing Delphine's hair and got snarled in a tangle. The woman supposedly got up, grabbed a whip and beat that young girl who ran in terror from the woman up the stairs, through the attic and out onto the roof. Delphine slowly walked toward the young girl and what happened next is still debated, though a neighbor did witness the event. Now some say Delphine shoved the girl off the roof. Some say the girl tripped and fell and still others say the girl voluntarily jumped to her death, not wanting to endure the madam's wrath. The body of the poor girl was just buried in the back of the property, but I also read that she was just kind of dumped in an abandoned well on the property. After this incident was reported to the police, Delphine was found guilty of illegal cruelty, had only to pay a fine and give up a few of her slaves. She then talked some relatives into buying her slaves so she could then purchase them back from them, And these already beaten and weary people were forced to return under cover of night. This experience is thought to have triggered her sadism. After this, the rumors really began to fly about how she kept like a 70 year old cook chained to the stove. Still other stories spoke about how she kept secret unaccounted for slaves for her physician husband to practice Haitian voodoo medicine on. Only two of her daughters remained in the house at that time, and it was reported that if either of them attempted to show any kindness or help to these people, that her mother would beat them. One of her daughters wrote about her mother, saying her mother had, quote, fits of bad humor, unquote. One man was so terrified of Delphine's tortures that he jumped out of a third-story window to his death. The window was then immediately concreted shut, and if you Google pictures of this mansion, you can see a window that is concreted shut. More about that later. Now, there are funeral registers between 1830 and 1834 where it was documented that 12 of the slaves that lived and worked at that mansion had died, but their cause of death was not noted, because of course. Some of these people included a cook and her four children, and they all died within two years of each other. According to the historycollection.com, in 1832, it appears that Delphine applied for a legal separation from her husband, stating he, quote, beat and wounded her in a most outrageous and cruel manner in front of witnesses, unquote. Some say he was having affairs with the help. So in 1834, in the kitchen of the La Laurie mansion, a fire broke out. Neighbors rushed to the house and tried to enter, but Delphine and her husband would not hand over the keys. When the police and the fire department, fire marshals, arrived and tried to extinguish the flames, they indeed found the elderly cook chained to the stove by her ankle. She went on to testify that she had purposely started the fire to try to commit suicide because she could no longer take the conditions in that house. Bystanders apparently broke through the doors of the slave quarters and found, quote, seven slaves, more or less, horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other, unquote. Some say a few of the victims had muscle filleted from their body, ears removed, and other horrid atrocities. One spoke about a slave that was wearing an iron collar and another who had a horrible wound on his head with worms in it, probably maggots, and they were simply too weak to walk. It was determined that the third floor of that mansion was the Den of Torture. One of the bystanders was a judge who asked Delphine's husband to explain all of this. You're not going to believe what the husband said. Quote, Some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to dictate laws and meddle with other people's business. Unquote. Needless to say, the fire nearly ruined the mansion, so the concreted window might have been redone for effect for the tourism. I'm not sure. After the news spread, a mob formed and attacked the house and, quote, demolished and destroyed everything upon which they could lay their hands, unquote. Rescued slaves were put on display for people to see just what ill health they were in. The New Orleans Bee reported that, by April 12th, up to 4,000 people had attended to view the tortured slaves, quote, to convince themselves of their sufferings, unquote. The Pittsfield Sun, citing the New Orleans advertiser and writing several weeks after the evacuation of LaLaurie's slave quarters, claimed that two of the slaves found in the Ree mansion had died since their rescue, and added, quote, We understand that in digging the yard, bodies have been disinterred, and the condemned well in the grounds of the mansion having been uncovered, others, particularly that of a child, were found, Unquote. So, during the mob attack, it is said that Delphine and her husband took off in their carriage, driven by their Creole manservant, Bastian, to escape, and it's thought that they reached the Bayou St. John, where they went aboard a ship that took them across Lake Pontchartrain. They took refuge in the home of a man, where she then signed her power of attorney over to one of her son-in-laws, so that he could kind of keep track of her affairs in New Orleans. They then traveled to Mobile, Alabama, boarded a ship, and went to France. Neither she or her husband ever returned to New Orleans. She was 50 years old at the time of her escape. While in France, it has been said that she lived amongst the wealthy, was honored, and respected in spite of the tales about her. Estimates about how many people she actually killed vary wildly, but some estimate it to be somewhere around a hundred. It's also not truly known what Delphine's ultimate fate was, but according to the French archives in Paris, Marie Delphine McCarthy died on December 7, 1849 at 69 years old. It is also not known what happened to her husband. While I'm not able to find what kind of lives her children lived after New Orleans High Society knew of their mother's sins, genealogy sites show that they married and that they had children in and around the New Orleans area. The house itself has been sold several times, but was restored and still stands in New Orleans today. So, there's no real way to get any diagnosis for a mental disorder for Delphine. Back then, there wasn't really any treatment for mental illness, and she would have had to confess to any kind of problems, and then she would have most likely been sent to a sanatorium. Except when it came to the slaves she kept, she was regarded as kind and intelligent. She showed no signs of this level of violence or aggression until after her marriage to the doctor. Or at least anything beyond what was, unfortunately, standard for those times. Was she a pure sadist? Was she a sociopath? What do you think? Leave me a comment down in the YouTube channel or send me a message on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. Consider sponsoring the podcast. I am going to be saving up for a much better kind of filming situation going on here. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening or watching. I appreciate every single one of you. I really wish you knew how much because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thank you and have a great day.